Hello and welcome to Read It For The Pictures, the comic book podcast where we read it for the pictures. I'm Dave Clark, and with me as always is the one who knocks, Neil Caput. How you doing, Neil? Good. I am the danger. I am also feeling quite old right now because last night I just saw Spider-Man Homecoming, the new Marvel Cinematic Universe Spider-Man movie with a much younger and tech-savvier cast than we usually see, both in terms of actual age of the characters and actual age of the actors. Yes, we're going to be having a little bit of movie chat up front, but don't worry, we'll still be getting to comics. And what comics do we have this week, Neil? This week we have God Shaper number 4 by Cy Spurrier and Jonas Goonface. I'm guessing that Grandpa and Grandma Goonfasowitz changed it on their way to Ellis Island. And also Defenders number 3 by Brian... Michael Bendis, and Dave Marquez. Based on the Netflix show, based on the comics, based on the old 70s exploitation comics, which were based on the old 70s exploitation movies. Yes, but coming right back round to movies, tell me what you thought of Spider-Man Homecoming, old man. Well, I thought it was pretty good. I mean, I'm kind of at this place with the Marvel movies where... I can't really unsee them from a socioeconomic perspective. So any part which is about Tony Stark will make me angry for reasons that the other people in the audience don't seem to be angry for. But the rest was good. It was a really good teen movie. The characters, besides Peter Parker himself, were enjoyable. Peter was more adorable than annoying in his nerdiness and they thought that the vulture was probably the best marvel villain we've had yet to the point where i kind of was rooting for him i mean i should probably back up since they basically have the vulture in this version as uh the head of a small business salvage crew who was forbidden from picking up after the alien battle in the first avengers movie so because he lost a lot, he would have otherwise lost a lot of money for himself, his family, his employees, and their families. He took a lot of the alien parts himself, made a flying suit out of them, and commits small crimes to feed his family. Oh yeah, and uh, spoiler warning, anyone. We'll have it in the show notes, don't worry too much. Well, it's like, he gives this big speech about how, to guys like Tony Stark... Everyone else is just there to build their towers and fight their wars. And, of course, he's the bad guy saying this. You're not, I realize you're not going to get critiques about capitalism from a movie that millions upon millions of dollars were funneled into. Yeah, probably not. But it is kind of odd that the first big-budget Spider-Man movie was about a poor Peter Parker fighting a like the head of a huge corporation and this spider-man movie is about spider-man being an unpaid intern for a billionaire and he has to fight a down-on-his-luck union boss well by the time we see him in the present he's not quite down on his luck he's able to provide for his family but then again i guess that's part of the one percent's rhetoric how 
people who have to work for a living shouldn't have nice things because otherwise they don't get to complain about having to work for a living. Like, it's not okay if you have a flat screen TV if you claim to be part of the working class. Or avocado toast. Um, um, gotta, Gotta have my avocado toast. Yeah, that's one of the stupider aspects of Australian culture that the Americans seem to have picked up on. That you're the home to that real estate mogul who thinks that us millennials are to blame for his failing business and why more people aren't buying homes. In his defense, to get uh, like two slices of toast with avocado at an average cafe in Sydney costs about 30 to 40 grand. But you know, gotta seriously? have it. No, not seriously. But yes. Okay, but, good. But before we devolve into full-on communist propaganda um good movie overall but problematic aren't they all but yeah i thought it was a pretty good movie i thought it was enjoyable it was like a john hughes movie that happened to have a guy in tights so yeah i I recommend it but yes god shaper number four let's let's stay focused yes this was my pick this week based off nothing other than the covers looking nice and so how did you find it neil i found it interesting i mean i didn't really know what was going on at all the first time i read it so i had to read it for the pictures and on that end i wasn't disappointed i mean i'm guessing from what i've read about the series elsewhere it's kind of a 50s 60s urban fantasy dystopia where the god shapers are kind of like these rockabilly mutants whose powers are they seem to manifest kind of like really trippy green lanterns creating constructs out of energy and they're of course on the run from the feds our main character is this guy named I think it's like na yeah he's a blues musician a man who wears a lot of makeup and normally characters who defy con- notions of conventional gender are the bad guys but he's the good guy in this and he's fighting against the various feds who try to stop him on his tour across america which also seems to be like those old green lantern green arrow comics except the political statements actually make sense green lantern green arrow but it makes sense Hell of a cover blurb. But, um, well, I don't see why the guy who protects our space sector needs to go on a road trip on foot to understand the real America. Like, his job description is basically just stop planet from blowing up due to aliens. His ring isn't going to be that great against institutional racism. But anyway... Well, how else are you going to find out about the real America? But yeah. I was actually just flicking through the pages here to find out if they ever actually refer to the main character with gendered pronouns. And they do. They do call him a him a he. But I could just as easily, like, see this per like, the main character being, like, female or some other intersex gender. It's quite interesting how they've been able to sort of thread, like, it's not a traditionally masculine character, but it doesn't come across as, well, it could come across as a really awkward caricature, but... It comes across as very sympathetic in this. Yeah, well, the play, the character himself, the places he goes to to perform are definitely the counterculture. There's a lot of detail put into clothing and hairstyle. 
what really interested me is that this he's a musician who's a character in a medium that has no sound whatsoever. So like when you see him jamming on his guitar, there's lightning bolts coming out of it and he's doing like this kickflip in midair with his foot extremely foreshortened in a way that it actually shouldn't be. It's like his foot suddenly gained three times its size for comic effect. And it works. It conveys that this guy is a really good musician, even though whatever music he's making is entirely to the imagination. Yeah, it's kind of an awkward challenge to do music in a form like this. You kind of have to rely entirely on cultural signifiers like like the fact that the bar they're in is like a very the denver electric it's got like a very distinctive sign and like the colors are all neon and fluoro throughout this like well outside it looks like an abandoned gas station it says outside denver electric established 1755 no, 1955. Okay, that makes sense. But inside, it's all, you're right, it's all neon and saturated, and there's some interesting lighting effects done with the digital colors, as well as with the line work, some good use of cross-hatching to indicate form. I guess if you're looking at the art, the first thing you are drawn to is the color. It's very deliberate and evocative, and it's almost trying to catch the feel of a scene more than what the colors of what the things actually would be it's appropriate given this is a very exaggerated reality and everyone in this bar shapers have like their little spirit animals of pink energy god help me when i saw that my mind jumped to thinking that it was a reverse situation of what was going on in your transformers comics what do you mean you were talking about how the transformers had like hollow forms which were people yeah and these are people which have weird hollow forms which are animals and monsters and what have you is it kind of like an externalization of the soul like in the golden compass or yeah also that like i imagine this idea has popped up throughout in fiction like a couple of times yeah i guess that was the first thing that came to mind the second thing animorphs though this is externalizing it third thing green lanterns because of the energy constructs yeah but it looks like the federales have them too their cops come in riding these bizarre bug-like steeds and of course they're a lot bigger than the spirit animals the civilians have don't know how that works yeah i guess it's it's a very useful shorthand like if you want to have a timid character you just give them a small little ghosty thing following them around if they're meant to be big and scary you give them a big and scary ghosty monster and you can unify them with common elements to show that certain people are all in one group but then like the shapers have control over what their things look like like, when N.A. is fighting off the feds, he creates this giant chimera exosuit thing that has a tentacle, a crab claw, a spiked tail, a rocky leg, like a rubbery punching arm, and a frog mouth with, with saber teeth and spewing some kind of goo, which is an amazing visual. Yeah, Just like- describing it doesn't really do it justice. And also, while he's doing this, there's, like, close-up on his face and one image bled into the overall splash where you see like a bunch of 
math equations and circuit diagrams around him. Like, and then on the next page, those are surrounded by a wheel with a bunch of religious symbols. So continue not really knowing what's going on or like what this means. Like, is he using like some kind of Kabbalistic magic to do this? Is there science behind it? Is there any difference in this world? Did they just put a bunch of weird stuff to make it look deep? Well, I have a shot at interpreting it. They also okay. repeat this circuitry pattern on another panel with the hero in it on the next page over from that. Yeah. And I th- actually thought that was one of the cleverer tricks in this book. It's a really interesting way to communicate sort of an overload of information. Like he's basically turned his little ghosty pal into like a magic mech suit and there's a big like when he does it there's a huge splash splash page of him doing all sorts of stuff so it's i mean naturally you imagine riding around in that thing would be overwhelming so it's interesting just sort of just to have something that's visually overwhelming and complicated and in the page over where it's got like the scientific writing surrounded by the the religious symbols he's being attacked by the baddies like they're firing like red darts into him it's almost yeah. like the mathematical notation is being surrounded like being surrounded and contained by the religious imagery and, and it's not too much of a stretch from there like from that and the fact that the character is black and doesn't present as gender conforming to imagine that this is like the bad guys have some sort of religious affiliation and are going after him for those reasons in a way it's almost like it's on the border of being too on the nose to have the hero use their power and then overlay a bunch of maths over the top of him and then when he's constrained by the baddies to just surround maths with science sorry with religious symbols but i think it's pulled off nice there's like an in like there's interesting compositions to each of those pages and it's and there's lots of interesting designs to all the stuff his magic mech suit is doing that it is just subtle enough that would make sense since the bad guys do have the really Pleasantville vibe to them. And there's the woman who appears to be their leader holding one of the civilians hostage to try to get N.A. to stop. The cops themselves are, of course, brown clad, like highway patrol meets stormtroopers. But the symbols, they're not just Christian symbols. They're all religions, including religions that wouldn't be okay with the 50s morality. There's like a, there's a Star of David. There's the Crescent and Star of Islam. There's a Satanic Pentagram. There's the Hammer of Thor, which, okay, I guess since that also has been appropriated as a Nazi symbol, that might fit in with 50s Make America Great Again America. I don't know, I sort of read this as, well, being a divergent timeline. Well, for one thing, they've all got magic glowing ghost animals. Well, yeah. Yeah, I think, like, even though there was a sign on the bar that said 1955, I think it was. Well, I assumed it'd only be, like, a few years after that. I can imagine that being mainly there to sort of contextualize the music. Like, if you write 1955 and then cut to someone playing music, you can, like, you get a lot of leverage out of that. But I imagine similarities between this world and our own could be very minimal. Well, the leverage being, like, 1955 would give you a context for what N.A. is playing. Like, you could imagine a song from that era. Yeah, that's 
that's what I'm imagining. Yeah, they could have their own religion or some mixture of a bunch of religions. Or maybe I'm reading something completely like incorrect into it about those religious symbols. I don't think I am, though. Well, they don't use any text on that page to expose it. The writer really does know when to get out of the artist's way on that, so you do have to read it for the pictures to try to extract any deeper meaning. Yeah, but uh, returning to some of the other tricks used in the book, the I don't think like there's either zero or very few pages that use a straightforward grid layout. Yeah, there's it's almost like every other page they've introduced a new idea for how to do composition. Like on the first one, they've got these exaggerated silhouette things laid over the top of the panels, like a running commentary. On the page over, the panel borders sort of zigzag through the whole thing, and on the right, it's like one timeline of events, and on the left, it's the other. And yeah. then when you get to him playing music it's like there's this big wavy curve through both of the pages that divides the hit the protagonist playing the music and his friends talking about him i didn't see the curve until he pointed it out which unifies both pages as a spread without actually making them a spread oh and there's this one thing where they're talking about a flashback scene a few pages over and a scene from the flashback is in like a trapezoid shaped panel that's bursting out of all the panels surrounding it the trapezoid with the man being lynched the woman with the tattoo of a bird on her hand yeah and the yeah. two guys with with the hood with yeah. masks and a noose so like we could go through and we could point to a whole bunch of different panel layouts but yes it's clear this book doesn't want to slow down at all the figures themselves are really simple but there's so much stuff we keep coming back to it's like i thought of shaolin cowboy when i was reading this and how visually dense that was but that has a lot of line detail as well as narrative detail this doesn't use as much line detail but still feels like there's so much to unpack with every panel yeah it, they have a similar energy like where shallon cowboy clearly uh, jeff darrow as he was drawing it was just having a whole bunch of weird crazy ideas and just drawing them into the like the backgrounds and corners of pages this seems to have like the same amount of crazy ideas and energy to get out but because the style is simplified, it's almost like, I don't want to say it was rushed, but it was sort of like drawn with a weird manic energy. I don't know, rushed in a good way, if that makes any sense. Well, it's the kind of rushed that used to characterize Frank Miller, where you, there was definitely like a kind of kinetic energy and emotion to every line he drew. Rushed would describe the current Frank Miller as we saw from the Dark Knight mini-comics last week, but... Last week? Are you reading more of them? Oh, it was it was a few weeks ago, but we saw that, like, pin-up of Superman's daughter, who looked, like, 60, where we just, like, put a bunch of lines there, and it seemed, like, all slapdash. Yeah. It doesn't describe this. Even when there's a lot of cross-hatching, it doesn't end up interfering with how we read the characters. Yeah, definitely interesting read. Yeah, we sort of had to interpret a lot of what was going on. But I think the general form of the story was conveyed well enough. It's about someone who's persecuted and into music, and people he thinks people will stand up for him, but when he needs them to, they don't. Yes, we never do. A nice little surprise, this one. 
Well, I'll assume that N.A. survives to the next issue. Just because he's beaten and captured doesn't mean he's dead. And he still has allies who will presumably pull it together in the next issues. Yeah, I think I'll be returning to this one. Should we move to the one with the significantly less inspired premise? Yes. Our bold heroes try to capitalize on syn- on market synergy by releasing a tie-in comic to an the, an adaptation of their own work. Yeah, it's like Marvel comics get more incestuous from a creative perspective with each passing year. And this comic, I picked it because I read the free comic book day issue of Defenders by the same team. Bendis is writer, Dave Marquez is artist, and the whole thing, it was a short story working off the hook that the guy you see in the beginning, you think he's Malcolm Sky, the sidekick from Jessica Jones, who starts out as a junkie under Kilgrave's influence, but later becomes an ally of Jessica's. But it turns out he's actually... Diamondback, the scenery-chewing villain of the second half of Luke Cage. And you wouldn't know this except for the fact that he says it, and since both characters happen to be African-American. Yeah, I I watched Jessica Jones and half of Luke Cage, and I kind of sort of put together the background for this plot. And you're telling me that Jessica's roommate was involved in some way? Well, they were deliberately trying to play with expectations because the art there was so heavily photo referenced like this isn't just jessica jones it's Kristen ritter as jessica jones it's mike coulter as luke cage these are the characters you've seen on netflix will you please 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 oh god put your money towards this comic it's Good enough to be like the Netflix versions, honest. I, I will say this for it. It does have nice drawing. You have individual shots of the characters, and we talked about a um, a very, very heavily photo-referenced comic a few weeks ago, but this, even though like it's very clearly photo-referenced, it doesn't fall into the same trap. There is like body language and expression, and it's... Very, it's done by an artist working from reference rather than something that is like potentially a photo that was modified to look like a drawing, if you know what I mean. Yeah, we may diverge in our opinions on this because I was more favorable towards Cat Stag's work in Crosswind in that, yeah, it was very obviously referenced, but at least they were referencing their own photos, stuff they presumably constructed for the comic. This is... Again, the likenesses you can't unsee, and it kind of disrupts the way you read the comic. Oh, there is certain... Like, I imagine if you took this comic to someone who had never seen any of the Netflix shows or any promotion for them, it wouldn't come across as weird and uncanny. But because, like, we're aware that this is an adaptation of a TV show, and you see a drawing, and it looks, like, very close to the actor from that show, part of your brain's like, this, I'm not getting the full product here. I'm used to seeing, like, this person, like, walk around and talk and throw punches in a dark hallway. Yeah, there's more than just hallways in these fight scenes. Is there, though? There's fights on the street, like, at the end when Iron Fist is fighting Diamondback, who has some kind of mysterious invincibility power Uh, yep that's fair i'll give you that they are out in a street but the fight scenes before then take place in a room that's take place in a dark room and then another fight scene that takes place in another dark room there's a sequence that's 
two pages of pe no, it's three pages of just people talking about what they've heard about Diamondback on the street, like being interviewed presumably by the reporter Ben Urich, because as is common in Brian Michael Bendis comics, there will be a lot of scenes that's just talking without any forward plot momentum. In this case, it's kind of justified since it's telling us about who Diamondback is because this isn't Netflix Diamondback and it's not quite comic Diamondback. And I think the they do a good job showing various locations within Hell's Kitchen and just civilians who look like civil- people of the neighborhood. Yeah, that um, you have more experience with Bendis than I do, but this is one of his tricks, isn't it? He has a lot of tricks. I don't mean to completely get down on Bendis because, one, it has nothing to do with him as a person. I'm sure he's a really nice guy in real life. And two, he has done some of my favorite comics ever with the Ultimate Spider-Man stuff he did with Dave Marquez, amongst others. But there are definite tricks he uses, often at the expense of the artist, one being the constant streams of dialogue with very little of it actually being relevant, like a lot of vocal ticks and repeated lines that just cover the page. Yeah, the um, you open the book and the first thing is it's it's got the title defenders in the credits and it's got one panel of Ben Urich with a drink and he's like got his hand to his head and there are a lot of word balloons around him. To be fair, that's where the recap page would usually be, so I think it's a nice touch to try to work it into the story that way. I guess. I don't know. I feel like I'm being a little bit too hard on this book because it it's aiming to have a photorealistic style and it's full of... It's got a, a bunch of sequences with letterbox panels and last week I read something by Frank Quietly, so I feel like I may be high, holding this to a little bit of a higher standard. Yes, we're disgustingly spoiled by... Frank quietly, but I do really like Dave Marquez, and I do think he is an extremely good artist. He's worked with Bendis several times before. He also was one of the main animators on that movie, A Scanner Darkly, which, speaking of photo referencing... Yeah, I imagine if we had talked about this, like, a few weeks down the line, he'd say, figures are really well done, there's expression, and, like, there's a wholeness to them, and there's... We talk about how oh, there's a ton of, like, they've used texture in an interesting way to give, like, stuff more depth. But I remain fixed on this fight scene at the beginning with Black Cat, is it? It's all letterbox panels, and the action doesn't quite add up. Like, I in my head, I kept trying to, like, picture the motion in between two of the panels, and, like, bodies weren't, weren't where they're supposed to be. And the action always reads from the left to right of the panel, and so it kind of just looks like this is the like a storyboard for like a scene from a television show. No, really. And then you have that same problem with just like each of the panels sort of being static and read in the same way when you have this page which is just you have several pages of just flat six panel grids, and each has a separate character, like is a different character talking. And it's like, this isn't a very interesting layout. It's Well, I picked this because it is very much hindered by what it's trying to be. And a while, our one reader on SoundCloud, Jesse W. Craig. Hi, Jesse. Thanks for supporting us. If you're someone else and you're listening to this, hi, Mum. 
Yeah, my parents listen to this too. And my mom thinks I'm cool. That counts for something. And if you're another listener that's not related to us, let us know. We'd be great to hear from you. Yes. But anyway, he was asked us, like, what is your definition of good art? And you answered in the comments. I will give my answer now that I think art is a form of visual communication. And in terms of comics, communicating a story as well as the explicit content or communicating an emotion. And this is a premise where you really can't have emotion because you're watching, you're reading an adaptation of an adaptation of an adaptation that has like 50 years of continuity behind it. So these aren't quite the characters of any of those previous adaptations. And it's clear that it's trying to take that photo reference feel while still giving some concessions to it being a comic. Like Daredevil isn't wearing the complicated red and black armor of the show. He's wearing his current black costume, which I guess is also inspired by Netflix. But it at least reads his tights. Oh, I I can one-up you in the, like useless knowledge about the Marvel Universe game. The black costume is a reference to the Shadowland miniseries where Daredevil was evil. Maybe, but he's he's worn the black costume twice. No, three times. It was that armored costume he took on in the 1990s because that was the thing at the time. There was the black costume he wore in Shadowland because it's evil. And this is for the back in black relaunch of all new, all different Marvel, which was it's black tights, but there's red boots and gloves and belt, as is well that, as his... Is that the old, all new, all different relaunch? Or is that it was the for, new... It was, yeah, it was the one from a couple of years ago that was so all new and all different. It used a marketing tool name that they had used in the 70s. Oh, dearie me. So you can see how it's really hard for it to communicate any kind of engaging story when... They have to re- reference so many things at once. I would have liked it better if they got out of the way of the story and just had the character, just draw the characters the way Marquez would draw them if they were just comic characters. Like, if you got the description of Daredevil and as, oh, he's a guy in a black devil suit, which I guess, I guess Daredevil is a good example, but... To not, like, make sure that every cage looks like Mike Coulter and has those exact features, or every Jessica looks like Kristen Ritter, even though I both were very good actors who did very good jobs with their roles. I mean, I guess with The Punisher, he's he doesn't have the jarhead haircut of the Daredevil Season 2 character, but he does have some of John Bernthal's features. If we were that hypothetical reader who had never like heard about the netflix shows and we saw this i don't think we'd come down on it for it being photo reference no but that hypothetical reader is purely hypothetical and this is very much pandering to a crowd of readers or viewers that's much bigger than the people who still go into comic stores as they die a little more each day from the ravages of natural causes Damn, getting dark in here. And I'm not opposed to, like, that kind of comic book fantasy casting that made Samuel Jackson and Nick Fury. Like, if you have an actor you thought would be a good fit for the character, by all means, you can use their 
features as a guideline. I've done that plenty of times, even though it never shows up in my final drawings. While we're on the topic of it, one trick that I used when, yeah. I, when I was trying to get a sense for how my characters look is I would just search in, like, go to, like, an actor's database, and you can just search up, like, <coughs> aspiring actors or, like, actors who, like, haven't established a name for themselves. And Oh, that's... So it's like, oh, I have a character who's, like, in their mid-twenties, and they're black, and, oh, I think you can, like, search by height. You can just sort of cast your story with, like, actual people. I've heard dating sites are also an interesting way to approach that problem. There's also the fact that actors play multiple roles, so I am seeing Jane Margolis and Spartan Locke a few times here, too. It feels a little bit reductive, but... Really, the big takeaway from this, from an art perspective, is that it's nice, but it's not Frank Quietly. It doesn't have like it doesn't have the co- like the tricks that make it sing as a comic. Like it's a collection of nice illustrations, but it falls down in a few parts, like as a whole package. Well, it's hindered by the fact that it's very much about the packaging rather than having the freedom to express the characters. I feel like there aren't even any much room for stylistic comic devices because they're so busy trying to get the references right. Yeah, and dare we say it, Mark Miller had a more interesting script. I suppose. This is... Bendis has written all these characters for a long time. He created Jessica Jones. He wrote Daredevil for many years. He he made Luke Cage popular again by making him an Avenger. And now it's like he's having to go back and do reduced versions of characters he's already done. I kind of got the same feeling when I was reading Bendis and Marquez on the all-new, all-different Iron Man relaunch because... They were clearly trying to show Tony Stark as a slightly younger Robert Downey Jr. there. But at least there, they had a bit more freedom. Like, Marquez was able to redesign the Iron Man suit and give it a particularly novel design where it's like a section of hexagonal tiles that can create a bunch of different modes. There's this, He had, like, the Hulkbuster Iron Man mode. He had a si- samurai Iron Man scene that was pretty cool. And the main... Like, the base design of Marquez's Iron Man is one of the best armors in recent memory. He manages to make the suit look form-fitting without looking like tights. It kind of reminds me of... Okay, it goes in the jar. It reminds me of Gray Fox, the cyborg ninja from Metal Gear Solid. There was one reference last week that you didn't put in the jar for, but that's all right. I put it in. The jar is getting bigger and bigger. Yes. For... If somehow we have new listeners, that's the reference to Metal Gear Jar that Neil has to put money in whenever he makes a reference. But yeah, it's a bit underwhelming, or like not really that much we can say. Really, it's. I'd look forward to seeing David Marquez do a different project. I would too. He's. I would recommend that any listeners who want to see Marquez given the freedom to be as talented as he is, check out the aforementioned Iron Man, or check out him on Ultimate Spider-Man when he was drawing Miles Morales. Even check him out on Civil War 2, though the less said about that script, the better. Yeah, but 
I think that's all we have to say. We've complained about synergy between comics and TV shows. We've complained about big-budget movies. But with the work of Mr. Goonbase, we didn't have any complaints because it was really impressive. Like, or just to sort of bring this around to that point about what makes good art, I think if you took any single illustration from Defenders and compared it to a single illustration from uh, God Shaper, I think you'd say that the Defenders one was the better illustration, but I think God Shaper is the better comic overall. Well, it's a matter of the technicalities of draftsmanship of art, like conveying like the human form in perspective and con- getting the lighting correct. But in terms of the art aspect, conveying a feeling, a character, a world, I think the God Shaper art works a lot better. But yes, and that brings us to what we're going to read next week. Well, I picked Generation Gone number one by Alice Cott, writer, and Andre Lima Arugulo. I I hope I'm spelling it right, as artist. And your pick was The Fix number 11 by writer Nick Spencer and artist Steve Lieber. Yes, that was me frantically looking up the credits. Yeah, we thought we'd throw a little thing at the end about what we're going to read next week, so if anyone wants to play along at home, they can. I guess that was Read It For The Pictures. And where can people find you, Neil? I am at wirecats.com, W-Y-R-C-A-T-S dot com. And you can find my stuff at daveclarkart.com, and that's Clark with an E. Well, until next time, see ya. Bye!